This episode of the Children's Literature Podcast is brought to you by Math Homework. Do it now. Don't wait until the night before it's due. Do it now. Welcome to the Children's Literature Podcast. I'm your host, Chloe Townsend. This episode is about The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe as a historical fiction. It can be really hard to understand the past. This is partly because there is so much of it and partly because there are enough pieces missing that there are often things we'll never know about or will have to guess at. Good historical fiction can help kids learn about the past more quickly, but only if what's in the book is accurate as possible. The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe was published in 1950, but it's set in 1940. It might seem like a stretch to call this book historical fiction, but I think it's useful for modern kids to look at it that way. First, C.S. Lewis lived through the war himself, and he wrote the story soon enough after that we can trust its accuracy. The way the children speak, the clothing they have on, the food they eat, and the concerns they have paint a pretty reliable picture of what life was like during World War II. The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe is not about World War II but so many things of it are from World War II. We've been reading this book together, and as we've gone along, we've made a list of things that would have reminded readers in 1950 of the war. These things would have affected people differently back then than they would have today. Okay, so I have our copy of The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, and I've marked it with all of our notes. What was the first item on our list of things that reminded us of World War II? The children were evacuated from London during the Blitz. World War II is mentioned in the second sentence of the book, so I'm just going to read these first two sentences. Once there were four children whose names were Peter, Susan, Edmund, and Lucy. This story is about something that happened to them when they were sent away from London during the war because of the air raids. Listen to that sentence, Chloe. During the war... Because of the air raids, does it say which war? No. Why didn't he need to say which war? Because World War II just happened. Yeah, it had just happened, and it was the biggest war that had ever happened. There had never been a bigger war before or since. So it was safe for him to say the war, because that's the only war that people would have thought of. And during World War I, nobody was evacuated. Yes, that's true, because um, there weren't air raids during World War I. They did use airplanes a little bit during World War I, but not very much. Let's go to our second item on our list. What was that? The food. What have you learned about rationing during World War II? I know particularly butter, and I know some sorts of ham were rationed. Also eggs. You only got up to one egg a week. Unless, of course, you had chickens on your farm or back garden. But the thing about rationing is you get your ration from the government, but then at home, if you have a vegetable patch or anything, that does not count. You can eat as much as you want from your vegetable patch, as long as it's grown by you 
and prepared by you at home. Rationing started in Britain in 1939 and did not fully stop until 1954. That's true. When this book was published, there was still rationing going on. I think especially a lot of Americans or people from other countries wouldn't realize mm. that even when the war ended, things couldn't just go back to normal right away. So this is the part in the book where Turkish Delight is mentioned, which if you have never tasted, oh, I feel sorry for you. How good is Turkish Delight? It is amazing. When we were first reading this, when we got into chapter three, you gave me a piece to eat while we were reading it. Yeah, I think that's, that's my favorite way to read that chapter. So it says in the book, each piece was sweet and light to the very center, and Edmund had never tasted anything more delicious. The book also says that there were several pounds in the box. Now, sugar was rationed. So for a kid to receive several pounds of very, very good candy, that would have been a thing that just didn't even exist. Well, I mean, it might have happened if, like, you just happened to have this candy stash and you had been saving up for years. Maybe, but think, think about this. Imagine that it's 1950 and The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe has just been published. And you are still your age, Chloe. So that means rationing has existed for your entire life. You've never been able to have as much of anything that you want. So let's combine that with another passage that has to deal with food, where later when the children go to the beaver's house, she brings out all of this delicious food. And here's this sentence. A great big lump of deep yellow butter in the middle of the table from which everyone took as much as he wanted to go with his potatoes. So do you think a modern kid, like a kid who lived today, would you even pay attention to that sentence very much? Well, I mean, maybe I would because I'm not allowed as much butter as I want. <laughs> but if, like, it was just, like, sitting there, I'd be like, well, that's normal. It is normal. It's normal to have as much butter as you like because there's no shortages and butter isn't rationed. But imagine that you're a child reading this book in 1950. Again, as with the Turkish delight, you aren't allowed as much butter as you want. So even a small passage like that, it's this nice little time capsule because I know C.S. Lewis put it in the book so that kids would read it and go, oh my gosh, can you imagine as much butter as you like? Wow. If I was reading that, I would probably be drooling so much that the book would get wet. <laughs> All right, what's the next thing on our list? The resistance. A lot of Europe was occupied by Nazi Germany. Right away, citizens and soldiers formed resistant groups that worked to set countries free. Just last week, I talked about the book Number the Stars, which is about the Danish resistance. It was really, really dangerous to be involved in a resistance group, and a lot of people were killed doing things like spying on the Germans, sabotaging trains, or even attacking enemy soldiers, or people who had betrayed their country to help them. So what characters in the book reminded us of the resistance? The beavers, because they were just lost in the woods and they didn't know where to go. And then the beavers took them in and looked after them and helped them get away from the house when they knew the White Witch was going to come and take them to Stone Table to see Aslan. Where, of course, you know, there weren't actually beavers in the French Resistance or the <laughs> Danish Resistance, but 
What would have been very, very familiar to people in 1950 was the idea of this network of people who were helping to fight against the tyrannic power that had overtaken their country. You know how they kind of go off and they hide in that little cave and the kids go, where is this? And they're like, well, this is a safe place that beavers go to. They would have used safe houses. Safe houses could be anywhere. It could be a barn. It could be somebody's basement. It was a place where you could hide and stash equipment like radios. So a lot of resistance cells would use radios to send information back to England so that the Allies could know what was going on in places like France or Belgium. And it was very risky. So one thing that they had to do was prove to one another that they actually were part of the resistance and not a spy who was sneaking in to find out who all the resistance members were. So when the beavers first meet Lucy, do you remember that they show her something to prove that they're on her side? Earlier on in the story, Lucy gives Mr. Tumnus her handkerchief, and Mr. Tumnus gave it to Mr. Beaver and said, can you show this to Lucy and her sisters and brothers? And he was like, sure. (laughs) A hanky would actually make a lot of sense as a proof symbol for a resistance fighter because they would do things like that. Like, let's say... You were a member of the French Resistance, and you needed to meet someone in Paris to, like, pass them some secret information. They would never tell you the person's name. They would tell you something like, go to this cafe at 11 o'clock and sit down and open a newspaper. Now, it needs to be this newspaper, not that newspaper, and I want you to open to the sports section. That means everything's okay. You don't think you're being followed. Nobody can have any problem with that because it's perfectly normal to sit down at a cafe and read a newspaper. And then you would be told a woman with a red hat and a yellow flower tucked into her lapel will come by and ask you what time it is. That will be the signal that everything's okay. You'll then talk to her, smile, and give her the information. So like something like that, that kind of an operation would have happened. But having something like Lucy's hanky It means nothing to the White Witch. It's just a hanky, right? But it would mean a whole lot to Lucy, Mr. Tumnus, and Mr. Beaver. When Mr. Tumnus was arrested by the secret police, we don't see that. But what did you see in the story about what happened to him? So his door was knocked down, and everything in the house was trashed, but then something was nailed onto the floor. What was that something? A note. It said that Mr. Tumnus was arrested by the secret police. Yeah, did they say why he was arrested? It said he was a traitor to the Queen. This would have been really recognizable to anyone in 1950 because, unfortunately, this kind of thing happened a lot, especially in the years before the war. There was a group of Nazi soldiers that would go and arrest people that the government didn't like, and they wouldn't just do it properly. They wouldn't send a police officer to say, hey, you need to come into the police station. We're going to read you your rights. You can have a lawyer. They would do it in the most scary way possible. There's a reason why the secret police in this book are wolves. You think of wolves as hunting in a pack and being very dangerous and vicious, at least in literature. In real life, if you leave them alone, they won't bother you. But they would go to people's houses and do this. They would kick the door in. They would mess up your whole house. Do police actually need to do any of that to make an arrest? No, but 
the Germans made them do it because if their neighbors saw it, they would be like, "Oh, I don't want that to happen. I best be loyal to the White Witch or Adolf Hitler." That's a big part of why Mr. Tumnus got in the situation in the first place. He he knew what the White Witch would do to him if he didn't agree to try to catch any boys or girls that came to Narnia, right? And that's kind of like a lot of the people who informed on their neighbors. It's really sad, and it's against the law today in countries that have good laws. I think I would have understood why this could have all happened because somebody probably just came to Mister Tumnus's house and said, "Can you just catch any daughters of Eve or sons of Atom if they come in?" Mister Tumnus was probably like, "Sure," because like none. Ever came in, but then I think he kind of regretted it when Lucy came. That makes a lot of sense. It's really easy to agree to something that you think will never happen, huh? But then it did happen, and Mister Tumnus realized he had a choice. And what kind of choice did he make? Did he choose the easy path or the good path? The good path. That's right, and he had a really hard time because of it. And there were a lot of people that this happened to during World War II, where they had to choose: Am I just going to go along with this when these people are coming and taking over my country and doing things I don't agree with, or am I going to stand up and say no, this isn't right, even if it means getting hurt? Mister Tumnus is very brave. What was our fourth item that we saw? Emptying the witch's house. What do you know about the camps where Nazis kept their prisoners? I think they were called ghettos, concentration camps, and prisoner of war camps. I know that they didn't give them enough food or water inside it. They also often made them work really hard, which is it can sound strange, but there's actually laws around war. You're not allowed to force prisoners to work, but they did do that, and they would often make people work until they died.、Um, it's a really sad story, and it's one of the worst parts of World War II. So, at the end of the war, one of the saddest and happiest—I I don't know—it's hard for me to decide if this is sad, happy, both. One of the things that happened at the end of the war is that as the Allies pushed the Germans back and liberated Europe. They would find camps that were full of people. We know that, of course, Jews were kept in concentration camps, but they kept all kinds of other people in camps too, just because they didn't match the Nazis' vision of who belonged in society. And some of these people were in pretty bad shape. If you ever see pictures of the concentration camps, the people are very, very thin. Their eyes. Have dark circles underneath. They really don't look well, and a lot of people who survived these camps described it as coming back from the dead, and that's kind of what happened. So when they go into the witch's house, Chloe, do you remember what condition were the people in? They had been turned into stone statues. So when Aslan breathes on them and they come back to life, and they're all pouring out of the camps, you can kind of see how that symbol would have been recognizable to people. Reading in 1950, thinking about what had happened only five years ago when the war ended. So, like we said, *The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe* isn't about World War II, but it does provide a really interesting peek into how the war affected C.S. Lewis and the many people who read this book. 
Do you think this helped you learn more about World War II? Well, some of it I already know about, like the rationing and the secret police, but the rest of it I learned quite a lot. Is it a more fun way to learn? Yeah, because you get to enjoy it. So this is called interdisciplinary learning. That's a fancy <laughs> your face. <laughs> That's a fancy grown-up teacher term that means when you mix subjects together. In the past, people used to teach subjects apart. They're like, "This is science. This is math. This is history. This is English," and you didn't mix them. I think it's easier and more fun to learn when you find ways to mix it. So, like right now, we're mixing literature and history. And I think you'll be better at both if you find good ways to mix them. It's sort of like having, it's sort of like having two things to hang on to while you're learning to walk. So Chloe, are you ready to read Prince Caspian next? Yeah. <laughs> You've been listening to the Children's Literature Podcast. Please subscribe and give the show a rating. Send comments to letters at childrensliteraturepodcast.com. We're your hosts, Chloe Townsend and TQ Townsend. Thanks, Thanks for, for listening. listening.